Plick. <laughs> we hello, are hello, internet. Going live. <laughs> hello, hello, internet. Inter- indeed. <laughs> uh, if okay. only those guys listened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any uh, any stats on on your audience? Do you get real time stats or anything like that? Uh, real time stats. I actually have a brand new uh, broadcasting system that lets me go in and check out what the current listener stats look like. Uh, we are currently at three live listeners. Sweet. That's my, uh, my, my mom, my dad. And my mom. And Chris's mom. My dad ditched out. No, probably just my mom. She really... <laughs> Welcome to Montreal Sauce, the show where we talk to creators, makers, you know, amazing peeps. Uh, my name is Chris, and I have all the mementos in Neko at Sumi. My life is complete. Um, <laughs> if I was a local TV anchor man, I'd totally spin that into an awful transition to tonight's guest. But uh, luckily for us all, uh, I first need to introduce the brains of this outfit, uh, my friend and co-host, Paul. Hello. <laughs> Last Thursday... <laughs> We had no live show because uh, you were off doing Turkey Day. Did you have a good time, Paul? Uh, I did. Uh, it was a, it was a lovely uh, American Thanksgiving. Uh, unfortunately, the I had the reruns scheduled to play, and uh, <laughs> my but I, what I forgot to do was tell my computer not to go to sleep. And so, uh, sorry, only like one and a half reruns played, and then and then my computer <laughs> decided that it was very tired, probably because it also consumed turkey. And that's not good for computers. So, right on. Yes, I kind of figured that was what happened because I often do that. Uh, <laughs> forget that my computer goes to sleep. Um, anyway, back in March, uh, I was lucky enough to take the show on the road to Vancouver, and uh, Paul and I interviewed graduate students at the Center for Digital Media. We learned a lot of really cool things that are happening there, and uh, we had a lot of fun, right, Paul? <laughs> yes, we did. Or at least uh, and you did, so, and I listened in from Grand Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, many of the guests were eager to come back and talk to us again. So tonight, uh, we are chatting with uh, Carolyn Fung, a marketing specialist, uh, producer, project manager at NGX Interactive. She's a blogger for Modern Mix Vancouver and Networking in Van, and a passionate advocate for interactive design who will soon have her MDM from the CDM. Hello, Caroline. Hello, everyone. Hi. (laughs) We also have with us Paul Jurisic, an entrepreneur, information designer, communication specialist, producer, and the co-founder of Arcanodes, a research design laboratory. He's got his AA, a BA, an MA, and is just about (laughs) to complete his Master's of Digital Media at the CDM. Good evening, Paul. Hello, saucers. What's going on? (laughs) Yes, so uh, that was my spiel, and my voice is gone. Enjoy yourselves. Okay. (laughs) So before we start, I thought I should probably say to any uh, Center for Digital Media staff or students listening that you should know that our guests are part of the prestigious, the last single-digit cohort, number nine. (laughs) Representing number nine. Uh. Before we start talking about the new project, um, Carolyn, um, I believe uh, stalking you on Twitter, um, we could probably (laughs) get a recap from the True North project that you were involved with when we talked to you in March. A recap? Yeah, like what? Well, for anyone who wasn't listening back in March, uh, so not my mom, but uh, anyone who wasn't listening 
what was the project? And then I think you were up for some awards or something, eh? Yeah. No, it's been really exciting. We had one of our... Um, one of the guys in our team is a really awesome filmmaker, and he put together a reel on our whole experience here that we submitted to a couple of different places. And over the past couple of months, started to see some recognition out of that. So that was really great. Um, and then the two projects for the museum are now live in the space, um, which is exciting. So it's the wheelhouse experience um, where we have these six interactive panels inside a physical um, wheelhouse recreating um, the feeling of driving the ship through the Arctic. And then we also have the touchscreen experience um, on a, I think it's a 42-inch touchscreen display where we allow users who can't get on the ship to interact with it uh, in a digital way. That's cool. And then, yeah, I saw um, what it was, uh, Vancouver UX Awards you were nominated for and a Unity Award. Yes. It was a very it's it's exciting that it kind of keeps coming up um, because the project finished in well it was I think it was fall of last year so it seems like a long time ago but it's nice the team got together again for the UX awards and we were there together and it was nice to have everyone together and um, see some of the other talent and things going on in the city so yeah that's uh, really cool congrats on those nominations thank you very much I, I was a terrible boat driver when I drove it. <laughs> well, you should come the next time you're in Vancouver. You should try it again. I think it's been it's been updated since a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, Paul, in the last term, you were part of a team that we didn't get a chance to talk to. Uh, I think it was Ultra City. Yes. Uh, what was the project that you guys were working on? We were working on a share economy app for um, charity. Uh, was the kind of the rough idea of it. Uh, we were working with the um, uh, Ronald McDonald's uh, children's uh, charity uh, locally here. And it was the idea was to create a, a system whereby people could donate products um, and then people would buy those products and the proceeds would kind of go to charity. Um, so we came up with a sort of a novel uh, interface uh, kind of proposed an interface around this, which would kind of create a communities around um, sharing and raising funds for a very valuable uh, charity. So, yeah, it was uh, it was mildly successful. It had some challenges, but we overcame them. Uh, for me, it was it was a great experience again to kind of push some of the interface design stuff um, and kind of play with interfaces that um, kind of built in with built in sort of analytics and. Um, a data visualization that was kind of more functional rather than just visual. Um, so it was a good exercise in that for me. Cool. Um, so um, I guess before we uh, jump into some more, uh, I also, uh, Carolyn, this summer you started working at uh, NGX Interactive. How are you liking that? It's fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. Um a lot. And it's allowing me to expand on a lot of what I was doing with the True North team um, at the museum. And it's been a great experience so far. That's really cool. <laughs> um, so, Paul, tell us uh, about Archinodes. Uh It's like four years old now, this sort of uh, lab you've created. Yes, um, it um it is about four years old. It's probably actually a little bit older than that, but um, the ideas were in place before that. Um, 
So when I was in grad school out east at Concordia University in the Department of Communications, I um, I was working on stuff around um, efficiency and uh, I did some stuff around like database narratives and stuff. And as I kind of um, – it, it it's a kind of a multidisciplinary program. So as much as it's very theory-based, we also um, were making stuff. And so I kind of – um, we had a nice small cohort and we started kind of working together, some of us. And out of that came a partnership amongst three of us, um, whereby we found kind of a gap within uh, initially within academia where um, you, we found that academics were very good at getting funding for projects and grant money. But then when it came to the actual um, sort of delivery and distribution of that money, um, the projects, as much as the projects would get made, um, there was kind of a gap in terms of being able to track um, how those projects uh, developed and to keep as you had as a lot of uh, often these projects were using grad students um, and various students to participate in them. The handing off of sort of the um, the content or where the project was was tricky um, because you constantly had kind of a changing sort of workforce. So we came in uh, with an intimate knowledge of how that kind of system worked and we would sort of develop systems. Um, often we started out just kind of using CMSs, um, but we had a bit of a bent around because one of us, Mel Hogan, was um, very much focused or her dissertation was around um, archives and kind of novel concepts around archives. So we really took on sort of an archival uh, bend in what we were doing um, to sort of uh, create systems that allowed, um, facilitated the communication between um, the kind of knowledge makers at universities and their kind of esoteric concepts uh, to be able to communicate those to kind of a diverse audience. Um, and then over the course of doing that, uh, creating these projects, we found um, it was it was a simple problem that would develop um, that you often find developed with these projects whereby um, you know you have a client and you ask them a list of questions um, via email for instance and when you ask them you ask them five questions they'll kind of answer three um, so <laughs> which is a common problem it's sort of they kind of answer what they want to answer and then also issues around design where clients are always wanting to be very participatory in the design um, nowadays, I think, is a, a product of the kind of the um, the empowering of the consumer, I would say. So um, as a result, we sort of started to develop systems, internal systems that would allow for uh, joint participation. And so we developed this thing called the process document as, as kind of a workflow um, within Arcanotes, uh, which became kind of our, our thing. Um, and this would allow us to clearly communicate sort of what was done in a project or observations that have been made and clearly um, communicate to clients what we were looking for feedback on. Um, so, yeah, so we ended up uh, working with uh, mostly academia, um, but also some nonprofits. Um, and then we've it's kind of a part time thing now with uh, some of us, but um it kind of covers a gamut of, of different things. We do design work and a variety of things. So yeah, it's Arcanotes. Oh, okay. And so 
it's kind of sort of seems like uh, also the basis for the project that you're both working on now with the CDM, right? Kind of something spawned out of that. Yes, certainly. So over the course of developing this kind of documentation style, um, we kind of had some um, some kind of practices within it that sort of morphed. We, As we were creating these, basically these documents, we set about to try and automate it and create a, an actual platform out of it. Um, but as we started moving along on it, the uh, it kind of, we quickly realized that the, the competitive nature of the um, project management sort of um, sector or, or, or space is is very full. And um, it's one that just we were going to have no chance in competing. And so we sort of shifted ourselves to more compelling efforts around sort of personal archiving. So we developed a bit of a, a prototype, uh, which we sort of tried to kind of put out there Um around a personal archiving tool that would allow people to sort of plug in their different um, kind of social media networks, different types of networks, and then visualize their content. So you very much would be sort of touching and playing with the content um, that you create, that we all create, and that we have scattered kind of all over the internet. Um, the, the effort was very much one based on um, using timelines as the, the basic kind of um, uh, interactive kind of main part of the interaction and then um, allow people to kind of move along that timeline and and kind of yeah uh, play with things that they've made um, and have it visualized and, and make it very tactile and very um, beautiful was the effort so based on that having done sort of a little bit of a prototype and there being a bit of a lull with the stuff that we were doing I then went uh, came here to the CDM to um, try and find cool people that were into cool, doing cool stuff. Um, and I found a few and we, uh, we got together and, and I convinced them to um, participate in uh, building a, a high fidelity prototype based on that kind of concept. The original uh, tool was dubbed ARC um, and then it, it kind of morphed into what is now referred to as Project ACME which we, it was sort of our, our thesis project over the summer that we did for three months, a highly intensive development um, uh, time. It was a quick three months, but um, we, <laughs> built, we built a functional prototype and we got APIs hooked into it. And um, it turned out to be quite different from the original version. So it allowed us to push it and see what was possible. When I met Paul, um, when the program started, in the summer of 2015, he was really focused on what he was bringing to the program in terms of a focus on archives and the work that he was already doing and wanting to build a team. And we always knew that this project term in the third semester was coming up. Um, so I feel like something that's very interesting about Paul to me is that he's been very strategic from the very first day in terms of um the kind of things that he was doing to track uh, along to get to where we got to, which was uh, Team Acme. That was the name of the our group um, that we worked under in that last semester. Oh, okay. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting because uh, last time you were on, Carolyn, <laughs> you're the one that pointed me to that documentary about those people who are like turning away technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now you're involved with this 
project where you're taking the digital life and you're kind of, um, I guess, archiving it in essentially like a scrapbook. Sort yeah. Of a digital scrapbook. It's really, I, I mean, I, this opens maybe a dialogue around kind of what makes what we were creating a little bit different. But what really drew me to wanting to be a part of the group and to work with Paul and Juan and Joyce, those are the four members of our team, um, was their approach to how we wanted to create this tool. And a lot of the research that we did before um, and a lot of Paul's kind of passion is around um, this idea that human beings need to touch things. And we are people who are tactile. And so much of what we do on screen now has to do with a flat, smooth surface. And uh, he just kind of brought to life all these things from our past, like typewriters and, you know, the very first MacBook, and he brought all these really cool things into our spaces that got us thinking about how we could bring those into the digital world and into this tool. So for for me, at least, it wasn't just about creating a tool that kind of brought all our stuff together. It was about testing and playing with design and um, connecting to a lot of the social things that we're so used to using in our lives and finding a way to make it really personal and organize it. Because I think the, the people that I shared Acme with in terms of this is what I'm working on, the number one thing they all resonated with was like, think about all the photos that you have in your computer. It's like a totally different thing to take a photo now. You take like 15 to get one really great one. Um, <laughs> so it's the idea of like, how do you sort through all these things that make up what your digital identity is, but to do it in a way that's kind of different than anyone else has done it. So that's for me, what was really attractive about working um, on Acme. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it, we should kind of preface some of this too, with the fact that we really were setting out to, to not, attempt to kind of compete with a lot of what already exists in the, in this kind of area. It, it's not like we were trying to replace um, a lot of these services and stuff, but more to be very agnostic in our approach um, and to really make it one where encourage people to still use all the services that they already use in the way that they use them, but just give them a hub to come to that's very beautiful and textured in nature um, and, and gives them kind of some immediate feedback just to give them a, a sense of the scope of their content because I think we've really, you know, the exponential growth of data has really kind of, we've lost a sense of all our stuff. You know, it used to sure. be, yeah. um, I, I give the analogy sometimes of, you know, I, I fumble through, uh, I live in this old house, old family house um, and I, I, I kind of sort through some of the boxes sometimes and I come across a, a box of letters of correspondence from my grandparents and it's like sort of a lifetime of correspondence in a box and <laughs> it's kind of to say what will be our equivalent to that um you know my grandchildren would they be able to go to an old box and, and leave through stuff probably not they'll find maybe a, a couple phones that will contain stuff but how will we what will be our our breadcrumbs what will be our our digital footprint after we're gone um and how will that be kind of communicated um, both both that respect and also kind of nowadays to have any sense of, of of the scale and scope of our stuff. So many so much of our content nowadays is is maintained within folders, whether it's um, on a Google Drive or Dropbox or these types of services, and they're hidden within these folders. And this is an effort to sort of find those common pieces of data that we all have and find a simplified way of pulling it all out of those folders and having it on display and letting people sort of leaf through it and make discoveries and trigger memories um, and kind of create conversation. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, idea. I mean, just today I stumbled onto something. I I don't know if it's a dot com, but it was called uh, Hoverboard. Maybe it was dot io, but it was like a portfolio site, and it was really beautiful. And I was like, oh, that's actually quite nice. And I just like signed up just for the heck of it. And then I was just like. Am I going to even remember this in like a week? Like, you know, you have to maintain like all these different sort of identities at Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff. And so it is kind of confusing when you're like spread so far apart. And as Carolyn pointed out, it's all behind like a flat screen. It's not something tangible. Well, and, and they're all in they're all in these individual silos as well. So you have to jump from one to the other to the other. There's not really a great way to organize all of that data, and yet it's all your data. There should be some place to, you know, to get your hands on it in a in a sense. Certainly, uh, although that is um, sadly a, a highly contentious um, statement to make that it is our data. Sadly. Um, So many of these um, services do retain ownership over content that we are creating, which is a massive issue. And we encountered some challenges around that even when we were pulling apart APIs um, for it. You know, it's really amazing what information is withheld within APIs, Mm -hmm. which I think will continue to be a challenge going forth. We so the three main APIs that we pulled out to actually um, build the the tool. Uh, we focused on three first and foremost, but the idea would be that you would sort of continuously add all different APIs and allow them all to be sort of plugged in. But we focused on Dropbox first and foremost, um, and then we did uh, um, Delicious, which unfortunately uh, <laughs> we had to use Delicious because we wanted to use Pocket. Okay, but Pocket surprisingly in their API they removed the ability to have. Um, time stamps on any of their content. So then it became completely useless to us. Whereas Delicious had the issue of it wouldn't visualize any of the content. So we had to create our, uh, Juan did an amazing job of creating a little script that would create little thumbnails of every Ah. bookmark within there. Sure. Um, Because it was very important for it to to all be um, visualized. Um, and then we also had added Instagram to the um, as the other API, just because it's um, obviously a very uh, visual way of of showing the the potential of the system. Sure. Um, but again, it's it, they can be very limiting in terms of the amount of content that they let you pull at a time. And so when you're trying to yeah. create a very dynamic interface, um, they're very limiting. Uh, the APIs can be very limiting, and I think it's something that's going to continue to be a challenge um, as those services try and really control. The, the means that you have to, to participate, they want you using their interfaces, um, which is which is we're trying to sort of say we, we want you to use their interfaces, too. We just want to give you a place to sort of see all your stuff right after, yeah. after the fact. And, and really, too, uh, jumping off on what Carolyn had, had kind of pointed to off the top there. Um, this really comes from an effort of sort of saying, you know, I, I've have, having studied kind of media, um, all types of media, analog and digital. Um, there's really this tactility that we've lost in the digital age um, for the sake of, of kind of getting everybody using these tools. We're all using these very ubiquitous interfaces um, that are all very much the same. And the the push of flat design 
um, really is kind of a bit of a dead end design style. Um, and it, it becomes very bland uh, for the sake of, of participation. But what we lose is that kind of connection to these sort of digital artifacts. Um, I again use another analogy. I have this old pickup truck um, from the 60s and it's, you know, it's a three speed. And I describe how I, I love driving it just because I feel like I'm driving a machine mm-hmm. um, and it's very mechanical in nature and I can, you know, get under the hood and do stuff to it. Whereas cars today, um, new cars are increasingly just, you know, interfaces that we're interacting with. And the experience of driving has, um, you know, completely changed. Um, and it will obviously going to change drastically um, in the very short term here. So these types of uh, realities, it, it, one must question kind of where where we are going in, in our interaction with, with the digital media. And so this is very much an effort to kind of say, hey, what is it about um, using a typewriter that um, is pleasurable and can, is it possible to take that sense of pleasure that's derived from that and through uh, a compelling interface that is still used on a, on a flat, you know, tablet or flat surface, make that again, a compelling experience. Um, a, a little quick little anecdote. When I first, um, when we first started working on uh, Acme, we had uh, uh, I kind of brought a bunch of um, old uh, analog to kind of media uh, like tools and stuff into the room um, for us to play with. And so on day one, Carolyn grabs this typewriter and she's just immediately just started typing away and she'd never used a typewriter before um, and immediately typed off a little letter and put it in an envelope and walked to the mailbox and mailed a letter um, and it, just watching her reaction to um, her, just her visceral reaction to um, pushing those keys um, I, I really kind of illustrated the point of um, the pleasure that's derived from that. And yet how we communicate nowadays on these on our phones and stuff, you, we don't derive nearly the pleasure of, 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 of touch. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, there's that sort of haptic feedback like you're pushing a key but you're really not that uh that uh, a lot of device uh, uh, makers try to push and it's like it's just sort of faking it it's not as pleasurable as pushing the key of a typewriter down it's very gimmicky and it gets tired yeah. very quickly right so um it's for sure which i think is a is a problem for design to fix um it's specifically the interface um as opposed to kind of it being more of a, of a tech. I mean, the, the technology is always going to go that way. They're going to do what they feel. And I think that things, emergences of like the 3D touch um, and haptic response to a certain extent uh, really are are valuable in, in that idea of like, you know, they've monopolized kind of the edges of the screen now that, you know, a swipe right, a swipe left, a swipe up, a swipe down are all sort of spoken for. The only mm-hmm. true direction left to go is in, Right. Um, so this uh, Acme's interface was very much designed with that in mind, um, that concept and is, is very much a concept of digging in going forward as opposed to necessarily going off screen left or right. You didn't, you never really leave the screen. You're always kind of diving inward or pulling back. Um, and I think that those you will see, and you're starting to see the emergence of design interactive design that, that, uh, is going in that direction. Yeah, I uh, it, when I was at this school, uh, 
visiting, um, I actually got to try out uh, one of the teams was developing like a game for the Oculus and, you know, this whole idea of uh, a virtual reality where you can do a little more like dive further in. But still, like, I mean, I know they've made lots of progress since then, but I mean, when I was trying it, like, I was one of the many people who get sick using the Oculus because, like, my brain is telling me my body is moving, but I'm not moving. So that <laughs> yeah. the idea of, like, you know, that now they're selling these things where, like, you can walk on them as you're playing in the Oculus and stuff, it's sort of the same idea, like, an interface that actually, like, you're using, like, a tool instead of, you know, just a flat screen. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, that's obviously kind of uh, a big area there's been such investment we're obviously kind of going in that direction i i can't wait for it to kind of move uh, maybe a little further along because i like you get nauseous in the thing and i i can't i find it just so disgusting putting on those those uh <laughs> those masks but um you know it'll come and i'm sure you know they'll get it they say it's going to come down to a a uh a contact lens and that sort of stuff so um it'll be cleaner that's for sure but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although at that point, if you wear them, like if you put those contact lenses in and you wear them all the time, there does get to be a point where you're kind of like, all right, am I in a Philip K. Dick novel at this point? Is what mm-hmm. I'm looking at actually real? Maybe I should take these contact lenses off and make sure I'm in the room I think I'm in. I totally agree. And and I mean, I definitely, uh, I, I don't like the, the, the con, like I don't like the prospects of all of this, but um, <laughs> um, I'm a bit old school. Um, but I think it's it's one of those sort of um, who knows what they're really where where all of this will necessarily go. Right. But there's right. and there's huge opportunities within it as well. I think that what we're with this project and and uh, what we're really trying to kind of um, suggest and kind of promote is the development of interfaces that um, continue to you know make considerations uh, kind of human considerations, reminding ourselves of of kind of the humanity of communication and um, to kind of make sure that we're keeping space for um, the things that make us human and and touch is a big part of that um, and tactility is a big part of that and a, and a recognition of of kind of the, the, the things that we interact with, the people that we interact with and uh, the stuff that we make and to, to kind of not have these things sort of pass through us as a stream um, but provide opportunities for triggering memories and finding value within those things. Something that's interesting to me too is the way I think that a lot of the prototyping that we do now when we develop things um, for the Oculus Rift, let's say in VR, a lot of that prototyping happens on screens. So we're using programs and softwares to drop wireframes and user flows and things like that. And something that was really fun about some of the projects that I've worked on here is that we've actually gone back and you know, for this project in particular, even though the interface was going to be on an iPad, a digital interface, we went and got cardboard in all these different kinds of colors. And even though we were looking for the color black as a background, we looked at different colors of cardboard that were black so we could get the speckles of that kind of imperfection that comes with like not a perfect black background. And it was kind of fun to play around. Uh, we used a hole punch to punch out different colors of paper and see how that interacted with other different kinds of colors and how those shadows worked in layers and in an actual physical, like real live space before trying to recreate that and even bring it online, which I felt 
was a really different way of prototyping um, that maybe we don't default to as much nowadays. Yeah, it was really an effort towards, um, you know, when you're trying to build a very tactile interface, um, there seems, it just seems logical to approach it from a tactile means. So to do it with paper um, Mm -hmm. and the interface itself is really very much based around paper um, to give it a bit of that, uh, allow the kind of content to hover a little bit on top of paper to, it's also about sort of triggering memory around um, these type of things like, uh, you know, who doesn't remember construction paper from when they were a kid, you know, um, and to kind of uh, encourage that sort of um, desire for people to reach out and touch the interface um, and to discover. Um, we also sort of tried to um, design the interface um, with a, a kind of a consideration of, of sort of you, you can't break it. Um, so to encourage people to sort of um, to dive in so that, uh, th- that very much to discover, um, and not be fearful that they might mm-hmm. go get lost or, or, uh, break something. Um, and that was also kind of the intention around, you know, nowadays, uh, so many services, you need to go in and set them up. Like, I don't know if anybody, what one that people often bring up around stuff around personal kind of archiving and stuff is, is Evernote. Um, I don't know if you guys are users of Evernote, um, but I I understand roughly how inter, inter, I've used Evernote, and I understand that it to be very powerful. Um, but it seems like just a bit of a dumping mechanism, and the, the, <laughs> yeah. the big thing that you need to do is you need to go in and set things up. And yeah. when you have so much information now and our time is seemingly um, occupied on so many different things, that idea of setting things up um, increasingly can't apply. And so to, to create interfaces and systems that um, by default are sort of set up for you or just allow you to just start navigating, start playing, and then allow the organization to kind of happen as you're going along um, seems much more realistic um, in this day and age of of broad data of of so much data. Yeah, I'm a. I was sort of a Evernote junkie for a while there, but uh, you, you have a point. And um, one of the things uh, when we started doing the podcast, uh, I've mentioned this several times, but Paul got me into Markdown for writing the show notes and. Evernote really doesn't support that. And so I've gone through other venues to try to do that. And a lot of the podcast stuff, the pre-production and the post-production stuff, I just did those notes in Evernote. And since I'm using Markdown now, I'm not using Evernote. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to organize this? Because usually I just have to open up Evernote, (laughs) you know? And then it was just like you said, like you kind of have to set up these things, but it really wasn't that hard. Just need to make a folder called podcast notes. Like I'm done, you know, and save Mm -hmm. my markdown writing in there. I'm done. But yeah, it's, it's interesting how, uh, you know, say like, you know, before the smartphone and all these cool devices came out, it was like when they first showed up, a lot of companies scrambled to have like an app. So they had like a presence and most of those apps were web apps that would just sort of like take you to their website. And it was just sort of a portal to the website. And I always thought that's stupid. I can just go to their website on my device. Like, why do I need this app? And 
now, many years later, a lot of times I'm like, wait, why don't they have an app? It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's a toughie. You know, like I, I really think I, I often look at the app market as such an artificial market. Um, and, I, and I think it will in one form or another die soon um, just because I think so much will be integrated. And I think we're going to a more of a carded system. Uh, there's a lot of kind of evidence pointing towards that. Um, whereby you're just sort of, you know, just plugging in some of these services. And it's sort of like how just having notifications on your phone in a sense. Like, why do I need to go to Twitter if my Twitter feed is just comes through my phone? Um, and I think you'll see more of that. Um, I think that the the days of the App Store, I mean, if you look at the things that sell on App Store, it's, it's games. Um, that's the number one thing that's sold. Um, and I think a lot more integration will take place. Um but it's also a matter of, I think, web apps. Uh, there's so so many apps out there that are just about a marketing. Um, it's just to say that they have an app. Um, you know, a classic example is sort of the the local hospital here has an app, and uh, they have an app. And you think about what a hospital would have an app for. It's probably directories of information and communicating to the public. Well, if I have to need to go download an app to do that, it kind of defeats the purpose of a hospital in many ways. And the hospital itself having wasted resources to develop for multiple platforms um, just to have a directory, it just seems illogical. But you can understand that they probably did it from that marketing perspective to say that they have an app, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a waste of allocated resources. It's a, and, and you could really, you know, that seems like a perfect opportunity to really develop a robust uh, web app. So I think there's many examples of that, and I think it's it will change. But is that uh, is that something that came up in Project Acme? Because I know you're talking about uh, just for the prototype pulling in APIs. But did you at one point think like, what if we designed a protocol that then other apps like Instagram or Dropbox could then drop this protocol in, and then it would communicate with our uh, archive or no? Um, no, we didn't really necessarily consider on that. We did consider like there was a whole area that we didn't get into around uh, when it came to sharing. Like when you the, the whole area around permissions is very complex, um, but very doable. Um, there are other services out there like uh, Slack, for instance, that brings in APIs um, around you know like um, Google Drive, for instance, and. The permissions around documents there, they've managed to work around and, and figure out how to make that work. So that was an area that, you know, in terms of sharing that was, but there wasn't an interest necessarily. The system didn't really work in a way that you would want to necessarily output that stuff. When with, when, uh, with, with Arcanodes, when we were first kind of playing with this concept, we talked about having a system whereby that you would have a sort of a, a half clouded system and a half, uh, like a system that you could then um, output into uh, like a, a home clouding system essentially um, and have the options to do that and there are stuff out there uh, that obviously does that um, but not to out to one of these services no that wasn't kind of a it's not really how the system would work so sure sure I, I was just wondering like uh, yeah if there was like a way to just have like a, you know it would have to be something that you know your 
your archive would have to be uh, a demand that people are saying we want this option, you know, just like, for instance, like Instagram, you can, you know, send your post to a few different sites, you know, but. Uh, yeah, the the idea, see, the, the um, as an example, um, Hootsuite, right? Like Hootsuite's a dashboard for your social media, supposedly. I'm not entirely sure what Hootsuite really does, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> All I know is they have a whack of money. Um, they, um, I, I think they're just basically have a, a means for people to spam is, is, is kind of how it works. But the idea uh, there is that you output. So the design of Acme is very much not to output in it. You don't create content within Acme. What you create is collections of stuff ultimately um, within it. But really the idea is to plug all your services in and have that data come in and allow you to see it and then sort of uh, refine it and explore based on that refining. Um, we haven't actually kind of described the, 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 the actual interface, but the basics of it is that there is a, a timeline of, of a, a year uh, that is presented like a yellow timeline on a background. And then um, your content is, uh, separated into three main categories that are represented by three colors, three dots, essentially. Um, so we have red that was media, so pictures, um, potentially video. Um, and then we had uh, uh, text, which was uh, green. And then we had links. And when you think about it, like going back to your example of, of Evernote, you know, um, the things that we're keeping in Evernote, if you start to look, it's really, it is those things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, increasingly files like major development files, um, are increasingly clouded. Um, there's going to be repositories that keep, uh, the majority of those work files from now on, it seems. So what we're left with as individuals is basically our pictures, um, our links, and um, some documents, some text, right? And uh, your markdown could be an example of that. Anyway, so to say that those are the three major things that we all kind of have now, um, and then it would swarm that content. So anyone who is familiar with like the D3 JavaScript library, um, Mm -hmm. seen those things spinning around, it's kind of that sort of interface. Um, And it plots your content then along the timeline based on when that content was created. And then it had a, sort of a fundamental search within it um, that would allow you to access the metadata that was contained within that content. Um, and then it would refine that timeline further. Uh, and then all along the bottom, there was a dock that would allow you to choose which services to turn on and off. And then you could also turn on and off the people whose content you were seeing. So basically flipping switches. And then as you flip a switch, the content on the screen changes as it organizes itself along a timeline. And then it allowed you to dig deeper into that timeline to get tighter and tighter in terms of the day uh, from month to, to uh, or from year to month to, to day. And then when you get in tighter, then you actually see the content. So those little dots suddenly then become images and you can swipe through them um, and see your content. So the idea was that from the, uh, the broader level, kind of the entry level, you get a, a visualization of your content and you get kind of some cursor or some, some basic analytics. So if I see a lot of red dots or in the month of August, then I know that I took a lot of pictures in the month of August. Um, maybe that was the trip I took somewhere. And so when you dig into that, you then find um, that yeah, you went on a vacation or whatever and 
And those are those images from there. It's very much based around uh, less about finding uh, necessarily that specific piece of content um, and more about exploring and seeing what you find and triggering memory. Um, and I think it's a valid way of looking at data going forth, given the sheer volume that we have. Um, I think we all need to get comfortable with two basic concepts and one one being that our information is out there and there's not a lot that we're going to be able to do about that. Um, but two, it won't always be accessible. And um, so to, to have a precise um, access to a, you know, a, a very specific uh, file or a specific image or a specific thing, it's, it's not always guaranteed that it will be available, ironically, even though it seems like it's all out there. It's, <laughs> it's not always accessible. So it's about exploration now. Um, it's uh, because, as Carolyn pointed out, you know, we take uh, 15 for one in terms of pictures these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Carolyn. Uh, so, I mean, I think Paul even said earlier, like uh, so much information goes through us now. Um, and I think I've said it many times on our podcast how we used to really talk about like you know, everyone wants their 15 minutes of fame. And now with the internet, it's like more like five seconds, like something is viral, even if it's just like, you know, some sort of terrible event. And then the next day, something new pops up, like uh, people that you showed Acme to and that and you yourself uh, using uh, and testing Acme, did you find like you were a little more pensive about things or? I think definitely a greater awareness um, in just brainstorming, researching. We did a lot of, you know, our three-month project term was when we actually were in production for the tool, but we did a lot of upfront planning and discussions around it when we were all um, determining what we wanted to achieve. And out of those discussions came a lot around just an awareness of how our information is shared and privacy issues. And um, even with our Instagram accounts and our Facebook accounts, when we were talking about the identities that we have linked to those accounts and how we use those accounts. Um, you know, for example, I, my Instagram is, um, is closed off to friends and family. It's people need to request it. And to me, it's because inst my Instagram is my personal way of sharing with people that I know um, what my life is all about. Paul's is actually open, but it's not under Paul's name. So I won't expose to the world what it is, but it's his point of view on the world. And it's, and it's a beautiful point of view and it doesn't need to be attached to his true identity, but it allows him to just be, you know, free and anonymous with that choice. Um, our designer on the team, she just has an open Instagram and she's very open about sharing her life and experience with people in the world. So um, part of Acme was creating the ability to choose who you share your content with in a more controlled and private setting. Um, an obvious way too. And in, yeah, in an obvious way. So it wasn't just kind of open always to the public and or private. So um, definitely found that I learned a lot, not learned a lot, but just found a greater awareness of things like that um, through working on the project. It seems to you that uh, we live in a time where, you know, uh, like I was saying, uh, people are more reticent that their, their content is going to be out there. Um, it's going to be accessible. And I think now people are more interested than in taking control of it and saying, OK, well, my stuff's out there, but I, I would like some agency in how it's going to be displayed. And for an increasing number of people, you know, Facebook doesn't represent um, the way of telling the story of their lives. Um, for me personally, it doesn't. I, 
and that's kind of a big motivator for this project is that I really, you know, I, I'm, I'm a maker. Um, I travel, I, you know, I engage with friends. I do all those things that, that so many of us do. And I really would like a, a much more compelling visual and beautiful way of, of showing that stuff and not just to necessarily show it off to other people, but just to, to go through those memories myself. I, I don't want to have to necessarily just scroll up and down or open folders. I, I would like a, a, a different way of doing that. Um, and I think that's how we used to do things, you know, like we used to take care in how we communicated to each other. We used to um, put time into, um, you know, how we would share our pictures, whether it be in photo albums or whatever. Um, it was more of a, a ritual around it. And now it has become just about uh, kind of the storing of data. And it's become about, you know, likes and these types of things. And it's a it's a much less human um, way of looking at information, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. I've been <laughs> I've been doing a lot of reading on that subject lately. Uh, uh, one, something I think if you haven't already uh, poked at is what I've been into recently is the indie web camp uh, kind of thing going on uh, movement. Um, not that you probably need more things to sink your fingers into, Paul, but uh, <laughs> but the, it's it's about controlling your data and taking control. And for them, it's about building sites where you, um, you know, we can always make the argument that everyone's on Facebook, so you have to be. So for the mm -hmm. indie webcam movement, it's more about here is my stuff, here's my data, I control it, and I'm syndicating it to these other places. And as you've already discussed, then you are giving up some rights. But it's a way to stay communicated and to hold on to your data. And so it's it's a pretty interesting movement. Um, and I, I've been reading a lot about it. And, uh, yeah, one of the things I just read recently that I thought was pretty interesting was that, you know, uh, when it comes to Facebook, um, your friends see about 6% of your posts because of the algorithm and the way it works. And I was like, wow, I would think that would be much higher. And that's exactly right. True. <laughs> and it's, it's very deceptive in terms of its, its sense of time, right? Like it really warps a sense of time because, because of that algorithm, what it's putting at the top of your, your timeline mm -hmm. and stuff, it's, it's not realistic to kind of your actual experience. Um, so it's a bit disingenuous in that respect. Um, and it's somebody else making that decision for you uh, based on what it thinks you you know and what you like. I think it's a really interesting time where people are starting to become more aware and have discussions around how content is created, personal content is created and shared. I think for a lot of us, it was just so natural to want to be a part of this exciting new wave of putting things online and having a bit of like this very kind of public open way to share about your life. And it's, it's a good thing. I think that people are, are talking and thinking about it more, but I still think that there's a, a, a lot of lack of awareness around it in terms of um, people not realizing what those implications are. So sure. it's, yeah. it's an interesting time just based on kind of thinking about my group of um, friends and family that I talk to it ranges from I don't care, I'll sign up for anything and everything and give them all my personal information to, you know, someone who would rather just be completely anonymous and operate under a different name, you know, and doesn't even doesn't doesn't have a digital footprint at all. <laughs> yeah, um, which so. is which is increasingly difficult anyway. I mean, just trying to do that with so many of these services. I mean, 
the whole thing of, you know, it seems increasingly you have to always put your phone number into these things, you know, which really that, that traces things really easily. But it's also, it seems like it's like, it's one extreme to the next. It's either you don't participate or you participate fully. And I'm not cool with that. You know, like I, I don't use so many of these services, but I do use some, like I love Instagram. Um, like mm-hmm. I kind of, I, I did love Instagram. I, I find it's kind of, <laughs> it's not as, as awesome as it was anymore, but it's, you know, I want to be able to pick and choose. Um, and you know, I want to give time to see how they evolve a little bit before I necessarily start using it. It's also about kind of finding your voice within those things of, of how you're going to use some of these tools or how you're going to communicate with some of these tools. Um, but I think there is a lot of pressure on all of us to just, you know, wholeheartedly buy into all of these things. And there's this feeling of inadequacy if we're not kind of fully participating in or at least aware of all of them. But really, how are we to keep up with all of this stuff? It's it's madness. I think in a way we're trying to claw back a little bit in terms of those extremes. I think the scary thing is thinking that there is only one or the other and people at least I think I consider myself someone who's trying to scale back. It's someone who kind of, as someone who had a greater awareness of it like a couple of years ago to almost, you know, I have a couple of blogs that I write for that I had personal images attached to. And I've actually gone back recently and requested and cleaned up a lot of that imagery that's attached to who I am on the internet because I'm not comfortable with that association of content that I wrote in 2004. <laughs> um, so I think it's really important to kind of, like one, I'll have an awareness of what's out there about yourself and then also to be responsible about doing something about it if you feel like you want to. Um, but I think that people are kind of in the middle ground right now in terms of figuring out how to do that. There's also a great metaphor, a, a technological metaphor for this um, that we, we sort of used. Uh, we we uh, actually went down, we should get Carolyn to tell you a bit more about it, but we went down to California um, prior to the beginning of this project to talk to a couple of movie studios um, about archives and how they're archiving things just to give us a sort of um, some kind of sense of, of the issue that we are dealing with. But one thing that really came up there was this idea of, you know, uh, digital content. Um, it's sort of there's there's this image of digital digital media as as um, being easily preserved. Um, there's a great anecdote of uh, the Toy Story movie and how when they made the first Toy Story movie and they um, had it all on hard drives and they went to make the second Toy Story movie that because all that data had sat that so much of it had become corrupted because um, the it's actually the, the chemical process of how that's kind of bonded or the electromagnetic kind of bonding of, of that content. Yeah, yeah. It has it has to be moving. Um, and so they had to end up, they had ended up having to scan the actual film that was made of the digital to digitize it, um, for the second round. So, and they, you have these movie studios that are, um, you know, they went through a phase of sort of digitizing everything and throwing out a lot of stuff, um, to see their reaction now of this and, and even having, um, some executives explain that their number one challenge is communicating to high up execs in these studios that data needs to be touched. Um, whereas the analog stuff, um, which again, Carolyn will describe to you, um, loves to sit on a shelf, loves not to be touched. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a great metaphor in how we go about accessing our information. And again, this is one of the intentions around ACME was really to um, sort of encourage people to, um, kind of, uh, you know, sift through their content regularly to kind of keep it alive. Um, not only 
you know, per, perhaps technically, but uh, more importantly, in, in one's memory. Um, the more we get to kind of brush across some of those old memories and that old data, um, the more we keep those memories alive in, in our own heads. I think we've talked a lot about personal archiving a little bit in terms of how we do that for our own pictures and things. And what was really fascinating about going to these places um, in California, it was Universal and Paramount Pictures and seeing some of these movies that we all love and know so well in film canisters, and these big rooms that are cold because you have to preserve the film that way and talking to the, the archivists there. It's their job to make sure that these films are are kept in time as a reflection of who we were and the stories that we told and all that great stuff it was just to realize that this kind of unsolved mystery of how we're going to preserve and keep these things for future generations moving forward is a lot bigger than just our personal data. It's about how you transfer existing and old formats into new ones um, in a way that still, you know, preserves the structural integrity sometimes literally of, of a film canister. Um, There's a tremendous opportunity to open up a lot of that uh, information and open archives um, to, to be accessible to many, to allow people to tell many, the plethora of stories that are to be told of all these things. Um, uh, yet another anecdote for you. I, um, I live in uh, East Vancouver, I could say in this old, this old house. And um, my grandfather, at one point I stumbled across these images, uh, these pictures, these photographs that he had taken in the front yard of the street and some point in the forties Um and they give a really good kind of uh, view of what the neighborhood looked like at that period of time. And so I was down at the archives in Vancouver here at one point talking to a librarian about um, finding information about you know, the house that I'm in and then, then the street that I live on kind of thing. And so as we're going through, I said to her, she, she explained that I could look up and see if there's any images associated with that area. And there was not. And I said, you know, I have some images of, of, of that area. Um, is there any possibility of being able to donate these to like to to provide these to the to the, the archive or add them to the archives? And she explained that there's this long, arduous process of getting these things in that I need to sign over the rights to those images and they would then no longer be mine um, and held by that archive. And it just seems to me that you're losing a tremendous opportunity to. Uh, gather and tell um, untold stories about the past um, there that could be a, a wonderful um, for many generations to enjoy. Um, these are the type of examples that I think that open archives really open up op tremendous opportunities of um, discovery. Um, and I think that there are uh, increasingly, there's going to be pressure um, put upon these these institutions to maintain it. And there's a pushback as well because there's a, a real belief that there is a way of archiving stuff and there is a, a truth around these things. Um, I, I, we built a lot of stuff with Drupal back in the day and built into <laughs> Drupal, there's a uh, there's the uh, Dublin Core uh, module within there. Mm -hmm. And it's all about, you know, establishing those predefined um, uh, fields uh, that need to be included in all these things. And there's a great debate about all of that. Um a tremendous amount of, of kind of time and energy put into ensuring that things are preserved in the right way. The problem with that being that there's just a backlog of stuff that will just never get inputted as a result. Um, here in Vancouver, we visited the uh, several kind of smaller archives um, to get to really, again, see these, uh, to, to identify these challenges. 
and um, they're very true. You know, like these these institutions are, are very poorly funded um, increasingly, and they're challenged to pick and choose what they do include in their collections. And a lot of stuff will be lost as a result. Hey guys, Paul here. Uh, that is the end of part one of our second talk at the Center for Digital Media. Uh, you guys can uh, go to MontrealSauce.com if you'd like to find out more information about what we talked about on this episode. Uh, you can find uh, links to Carolyn and Paul and a lot of information about their projects. Uh, and you can also find a link to our uh, Patreon if you'd like to support the show, help us uh, talk to more people like Carolyn and Paul. Uh, and we'll be back next week with part two.